So glad to have you with us today. And uh, the last week of our series, Culture Clash. Come on, somebody say Culture Clash. Yeah, you got to say it like that, like there's a problem, right? Like you got to say it like you're mad about it, Culture Clash. And, uh, and, and really, honestly, it's been a great series. It's been, um, I think, very helpful for a lot of people, a lot of conversations that we've had over the last few weeks. Like I said, we talked about uh, alcohol, abortion, sexual sin, racism. We talked about a whole lot of things. And why are we doing this? This will be the last week that you have to hear me say this, okay? But why are we talking about these things? It's because we're already talking about these things. We're already having these conversations uh, in culture, on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and wherever social media you're on, Snapchat, like you're already talking with your friends about it. You're already seeing people's opinions on these things. You're already seeing uh, on Capitol Hill, you know, in government and politics and news, you see it all over the news, the different opinions that people have. And I think it's so important for us to have a biblical perspective on all of these issues because if you do not get a biblical perspective, culture will quickly give you its. It will tell you what it wants you to think, how it wants you to say things, how it wants you to act on things. And I believe that the Bible, in the same way, tells us how we are to think. And we are to have the what mind of what? Christ. We are to think like God. And if you want to think like God, you have to read the words that he's already said. If you want to be able to say the things that he says and do the things that he does, you have to know what it is that he actually says, right? That would just stand to reason. And so uh, I want to think like God. I want to act like God. I want to say the things that God would say. I want to view people the way that God would view people, not the way that culture says that we are to view ourselves and others. And so um, I think it's not just political issues. I think these are moral issues. Yes, it's probably the most divisive topic that we uh, could possibly talk about today, and that is LGBTQ. Uh, that is the idea uh, same-sex attraction and, 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 and homosexual marriage and all these different things. Like, we could talk about all this. And that is probably the most divisive topic, not just in culture, but even within the church. A lot of people don't believe the same things on this, even in the body of Christ. And, and so that's why I want to talk about this. And, and I want to start today by just acknowledging that there's many people in our lives that we love dearly that identify themselves in the LGBTQ community. I mean, there might be some people in here in this place today. I mean, there are coworkers, there are friends, there are classmates, the people we hang out with on a regular basis. They might even be uh, your kids. You might be a parent in here today that has a kid that is, is saying, hey, I'm not really sure uh, if I'm straight. I, I might be bi or I might be uh, a gay or whatever it might be. I might be trans. I feel like I'm not in the right body and my mind is, is different than what my body says that I am. And we have to be able to have these conversations from a biblical perspective. And that's what I want to help you with today. And, and this message is not intended to shame anybody. I don't want you to feel convicted or I don't want to feel condemned or, or shame or guilt or all these things that come from the enemy I simply want us to open up ourselves to say, hey, maybe, you know what, Holy Spirit, will you speak to me and convict my heart on the way that I think about this? Convict my heart on the way that I believe about this, the way that I act on this, the way that I talk to others uh, about this topic today. And it's not meant to shame anybody. And most importantly, it's not a gotcha message. None of these messages have been. And I hope that you haven't felt that way as we've gone through these. Uh, last year, when I talked about abortion, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, I quickly touched on abortion. And, and there was someone in the crowd, uh, a man that just kind of uh, loudly, as I, as I said something, he said, you get him, pastor. And that never really sat right with me. I didn't really like that he did that. Because I'm not here trying to get anybody. Right? Like, radical church is not here to get anybody. I'm not here to shame anybody. I don't want to make anybody feel bad about themselves. The word of God says that we are to build one another up. Amen? We are to speak life over one another. I don't want to shame anybody. I don't want to get anybody. This isn't a gotcha message. And to be honest, I try not to have any opinions on anything, really, if I can be honest. I just look to the word of God. I do the best I can to interpret it faithfully. I present it to you, and I'll let the Holy Spirit do the rest. And so I'd encourage you today. Um, this isn't a message where, I mean, you can say amen. I mean, you can clap if you feel like it, but I certainly don't want it to be like, hey, you tell them, come on. We don't need any of that. Why? Because that's just gonna make somebody in this place that struggles with this feel terrible. 
like that we're not here to support them. And that's not what we're about at Radical Church. I'm gonna start off by saying, if you have same-sex attraction, you feel like that you might be gay or bi or trans or whatever it might be, I just want you to know that you have a place here in our church. We love you and we're glad that you're here, seriously. You have a family member that is struggling with this or dealing with this and might have different opinions than you on this. Maybe you disagree with me on this. Maybe you're straight, you're in this place and you're like, hey, I'm straight, but I'm pro uh, uh, a same-sex marriage and all this stuff and I'm pro LGBTQ. Well, let me, let me tell you, you have a place here in our church as well. It's not gonna change how I preach. It's not gonna change the truth of God's scripture. At the same time, I need you to know we ain't ever gonna kick anybody out because of something that they're dealing with or something that they believe, man, that's why we're here. So that you can wrestle with our faith and our feelings. So that we can wrestle with culture and Christianity. That's what we do here, amen? And so I just want you to know that right up front. It's a deeply personal topic. And so um, I want everybody to experience a radical love of Jesus in this place, no matter how you identify. And so I understand why it's divisive. I really do. Because it's not just culture that disagrees on it, it's the church that disagrees on it. And if we can't even figure out what we believe on something, then how in the world can we uh, think that our culture would be able to figure it out, right? And so I think we need to start with the Bible. Because this is where the attack usually starts. Culture has been attacking the word of God more than ever before. Trying to discredit it, to say that it is not authoritative, that it is not inspired, And what do we believe about the Bible as Christ followers? Well, let me put it plainly. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God that guides our lives and leads us into truth, whether that truth is convenient or extremely difficult to accept. How many of y'all know it's hard to accept the truth when it's not what you already believed, (laughs) right? I don't like being wrong. Anybody like being wrong? You enjoy that? I didn't think so. Sometimes I look at the Bible and I read something and I have to reevaluate my opinion on it. But that's what it's for. That's the whole point. If you just stayed the same way and thought the same things and never were even open to changing your mind on something, you'd be a pretty stubborn person now, wouldn't you? But the Bible says that we are to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. How can you be transformed if you're never open to learning something new or changing your opinion based on what the word of God says? So we have to be open to what God says. Uh, whether or not it's uh, easy to accept, or whether it's not, the truth sometimes hurts, amen? And we don't like it. But there's two ways that we can interpret scripture. The first one is eisegesis. Somebody say, eisegesis. Okay, pretty good, pretty good. Okay, we're gonna learn some things today. And by the way, this message is gonna be a little bit more teaching than I usually do. This series has been a little bit more, uh, had more teaching elements to it uh, rather than me just saying, hey, let's get pumped up for Jesus, right? Like I want you to learn, okay? I want us to know what the word of God says. So I'm gonna spit a bunch of stuff at you today. You might not remember all of it. You might not be able to write it all down or type it all out. Your thumbs might not work that fast, okay? But what I want you to do is I want you to just internalize it uh, and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And if you need to go back later and watch it, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook, like you can go watch it again, okay? Um, And so eisegesis is how culture and how many Christians will interpret the Bible. Simply put, eisegesis means to read into something, to read into the text what you want it to say. How many times have you ever read the Bible before and you've just been looking for passages to figure out if what you're doing is fine, right? Like, like, am I allowed to do this? Like, you know, is this okay? And you try to go and find some verses and many times what we'll do is, and people today will take one or two verses and they'll make the Bible say something that it doesn't. You can make the Bible say anything you want to. Seriously, I kid you not. There are people that are so skilled at selective memory and selective passage like taking, you can take two or three verses and make the Bible say something that the Bible as a whole does not actually say, and it will sound very convincing. And this is what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to twist scripture, take it out of context. That's why Jesus said in the last days, when you gotta watch out for false prophets because they're gonna be trying to twist scripture into saying things that it does not say. And so eisegesis means that, hey, I already have my own bias. I already have my own opinion. It's called confirmation bias. You're just trying to find a couple of verses that make you feel good about what you already think and believe. That is eisegesis. I'm reading into the Bible something it doesn't say. Exegesis. Somebody say 
exegesis. Come on, you're about to be some hermeneutical Bible scholars by the end of this. Okay, here we go. That simply means to read or to pull out of. Exegesis is the proper way to interpret scripture, which is that you let scripture interpret scripture and you let the Bible as a whole speak, not just the one or two passages that you think validate your already given ideas. You come to God and you open up the word of God and you say, God, I'm just gonna start with a clean slate and I'm gonna read this and read all the relevant passages and scriptures and then I'm gonna form my opinion after I have read all of it. See the difference? That's exegesis. Let the whole text of scripture speak truth in its cultural context, and then we take that and apply it to our lives today. That's how you do proper interpretation of the Bible. So here's the issue with the church, is that there are people on both sides of the issue of LGBTQ, good people, great people on both sides that have differing opinions. There's churches and leaders and theologians who believe that scripture clearly demonstrates that homosexuality is contrary to God's design for creation, and that is a result of idolatry towards God and elevating self above God. But then there's people on the other side of it that would say there's churches, leaders, theologians who believe that the scriptures speak, uh, the scriptures that do speak against homosexuality were either just relevant during that specific time or they were only referencing these idolatrous acts of homosexuality and not the monogamous, committed, loving relationships that we see a lot today. They're saying, well, hey, it was a different thing back then. It was not the same thing and therefore it's not relevant. And so these are kind of the two different camps that we see within the church today. And so what I wanna do is I wanna start with what we know to be true. That's the best place to start. What do we know is is truth? And the first thing we know to be true from scripture is that our bodies were created not only by God, but also for God, amen? Like we talked about this last week, the Corinthian church, they they didn't view their bodies as very important. That's why they fell into many kinds of sexual sin. But we have to understand that our bodies are given to us by God. And when you're a believer in Jesus, you now have the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That's why the word says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And your body is important and what we do with it is important as well. And so in God's love for us, he gives us boundaries on how we are to use this body that he has given us. We see very clearly in Genesis 2 that God designed a man and woman to be able to come together as one flesh in marriage. This is what God, is his original design. Genesis 2, at the very, very beginning, a, a heterosexual union is just a picture of God's pursuit of mankind and what he calls good. He made man, he made woman, he put them together, and he said, this is good. This is a good thing. And so there's no instance in all of scripture where God ever celebrates or advocates sex outside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. There's not one scripture where God celebrates that or advocates for it. You can't find it. In fact, God uh, talks a lot about many different things that we're not to do as Christ followers. Now, he prohibits sexual prostitution, violence, sex with animals, sex with relatives, uh, and in sex between a man and a woman who are not married in a covenant marriage. So there's a lot of different things that God says that we should not be doing. It's not just this one issue of LGBTQ. It's not just a same sex issue. It is an all sex issue, right? Like this is what we talked about last week as well as many times we have such a focus on same sex attraction and homosexuality and LGBTQ and all this stuff. And we harp on it, we harp on it, but we completely neglect the fact that there are many people within the body of Christ that are dealing with heterosexual sin as well. And we can't do that. We can't do that. It's, it's not just a same-sex issue. It is a sexual activity outside of God's design issue. And every book, article, commentary, literally everything I've ever read from gay Christians or theologians, I have yet to read one argument that doesn't take a great deal of hermeneutical gymnastics to make it say what they want it to say. And this is eisegesis at its core. It's taking scripture out of context, making it say something that we want it to say. Many of the leading gay theologians honestly have just straight up come out and being like, you know what? Actually, we know 
that Jesus and Paul and the whole of scripture actually condemns homosexuality, but we're just gonna do it anyway. And these are some gay theologians. Many of them have done that. Many of them haven't though. And they're still trying to prove that the Bible does not say that homosexuality is sinful in nature. And so we see uh, there's others who have taken a different route. One is forcing the text to say something it does not say. And the second is characterizing all of the texts that speak about homosexuality as just irrelevant. Uh, it, it was for that time, our culture has evolved, right? Like you hear that sometimes. Like we've evolved past this. Like this is a different thing. That was a cultural issue, not a today issue. It's a different thing. And they try to characterize it as irrelevant. And so what I wanna do is I wanna go through some arguments uh, from leading gay theologians and gay Christians all around the world and some of the leading arguments that they might give, the claims, if you will, that they will make. And then I wanna give a biblical response to each of those claims. So we're just gonna go step by step, claim, response, claim, response, claim, response. So it's gonna be a little bit of a teaching element, but I hope you guys will lean in because there's a lot to learn here. Some of this stuff maybe you've never heard before. Uh, some of it maybe you have, uh, but I encourage you really lean into this because I think it's going to change the way that many of us think on this topic. So the first one, the claim is that the sin of Sodom is not homosexuality, but that it was rather greed or in other sexual sins like rape and incest. And this is what people, you've read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, they get destroyed, burning sulfur from heaven. Like it's this crazy story of these cities getting absolutely just leveled. And people will argue about what the sin of Sodom was. Here's my take on it. Honestly, I don't even really care. <laughs> like you could debate on what the sin of Sodom was uh, all day long. I don't even think it is actually the best text to prove any kind of a point either way. And there's many, many, many other texts that actually speak to this that are a little bit more clear. And so we're not even gonna talk about that today. We're not even gonna talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, which is usually where people will start. I just think it's a bad place to start. So um, we're gonna go to Leviticus 18.22. That's where we're gonna start today. Yes, Old Testament. Yes, Leviticus. Come on now. It says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. So the claim is, is that we can't follow the laws in Leviticus that speak about homosexual relationships because they were particular to the governmental laws of ancient Israel and they're no longer relevant to us today. It, and that makes sense in one way because you would say, well, we don't follow a whole lot of other laws in the Old Testament either, right? Uh, like at Radical Church, you are not gonna find us sacrificing a sheep at the front of this altar, okay? Like, and if we ever did, please leave because that's weird, all right? We ain't gonna do that, okay? But that's because we understand it was a ceremonial law of the day. And here's the response. There's three different kinds of laws that you will find in the Old Testament. Some Levitical laws are civil in nature. And they specifically pertain to the government of ancient Israel. It was for them at that time, for their government, for those people. and does not apply to anyone else. Some laws are ceremonial pertaining to sacrifices, offerings, festivals for God's people under the old covenant. How many of y'all know that we are under a new covenant because of Jesus? We understand that, yes? Okay, good, I don't have to go through that, awesome. So some laws are moral laws though, like lying, stealing, killing somebody, okay? Like these are not good things overall. And these are things that are not just said in the Old Testament, but are also reiterated in where? The New Testament. Something that is, is stated in the Old Testament and then explicitly reiterated in the New Testament, that is a quick and easy way to understand that, hey, this is something that still applies to us today. And these laws actually are moral in nature and they show a lot more about God's character and how he thinks and acts and how he wants us to think and act as well than it does about talking to the old Israelite covenant. It's completely different. And so you have to have a proper understanding of these laws in order to be able uh, to interpret them well. So homosexuality, what do we know? It's talked about in the Old Testament. It's talked about in Leviticus. Where is it also talked about? It is talked about a lot in the New Testament. Sexual sin is talked a lot about in the New Testament as well. And so that's where we see that, hey, man, these laws still do apply today. So Romans 1 in the New Testament, let's go there. It's one of the most popular passages about 
homosexuality in all of scripture. Romans 1, 24 through 27. This is Paul writing. Let's read it together. Here we go. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the claim is, is that when Paul spoke against homosexual practice in Romans 1, he was talking about the sensual acts that took place in these idol temples, not these loving, committed, monogamous relationships that we find today. That's what the claim is. We talked about this last week, that in the Greco-Roman culture, it was very, very normal for men to go to these temple prostitutes, have sex with them, and worship of these gods. And also there would even be boys there. And, And so it was a very common thing for men to take advantage of boys in this way. It was not even viewed as weird to them. Okay? We have to understand it's a different culture. It's a different mindset that these people lived in. And so I would say the response to this claim is that Paul looked at homosexual practice as a direct result of mankind's rejection of God. You see it right here. He's basically saying, if you go back and read this, what is he saying? Is that God, man has rejected God. They replaced the truth with a lie. And they have made themselves in a place above God. And he's saying that this is essentially idol worship. I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping the created things. I'm worshiping you and worshiping our ideas rather than worshiping God and his ideas and understanding that it is God that has the ultimate say, not us. When we elevate ourselves above God, what is that? That is called idolatry. And this is explicitly against what God would have us to do. So, The response to Romans 1 from gay theologians wasn't even there until the 1960s in the sexual revolution. I want people to understand this. Sometimes people think that we've been debating this for 2,000 years. No. This is a less than 100 years old issue that we have here in America and across the world. It was not even thought of to be normal even two, three, four hundred years ago especially in the church. This is not a normal thing. And it's never been a view held by theologians or by the church ever throughout of all church history. And so the issue is real. Like the attraction is real. I have to make sure that we understand that. It's not like it's not there. The struggle is real. But scripture is also clear that homosexual acts are contrary to God's order and design and are only in our world because of the fallen nature of the world that we live in. We live in a fallen world. What does the Bible say? That we have all what? Fallen short of the glory of God. We all sin against God in different ways. We all have our vices. We all have things that we deal with. And this also, interestingly enough, is the only verse that talks about lesbianism. There's only one in the entire Bible, and it is in Romans 1. Some people will argue that it's not talking about that. Just use common sense. They'll say, well, the women exchange their natural relations for unnatural ones. And they'll try to read into it and say, no, like unnatural means like something else. No, no, no. It's obvious. Like just read it. The women exchange for unnatural ones in the same way that the men were inflamed with lust for one another and slept with each other. It's the same thing. It's in the same way. You read it right there. Men committed shameful acts with other men. We're inflamed with lust for one another. It's the same thing. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, we'll keep going on to the next one. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So in this passage, there's a huge debate 
on a couple of the Greek words that are used. There's two Greek words. I'm going to teach you a little bit today. The first one is malakos. Can someone say malakos? There you go. The second one is arsenikoitai. Well done. Well done. There you go. You could say that you learned some Greek today. There you go. So the claim is that the scriptures in the New Testament that talk about homosexuality are kind of ambiguous in their interpretation. Uh, They're not really very clear. It's more of a gray area, and we're not really sure what it means. And they're more likely referring to the passive or receptive partner in the homosexual acts, uh, which is very common in this first century Greco-Roman culture. So just like we talked about, this was a normal thing for them. And and, and malakos actually means something, um, we'll talk about it in just a moment, but they had a differentiating between the passive, there's no other way to say this, honestly, guys. They differentiated between the passive partner and the active partner in, in a homosexual relationship. So if there was a man and he was the active one, uh, that was actually not viewed as wrong in that culture. But if you were the passive receiver, then that was actually viewed as you were effeminate and you were less than, and that was not a good thing. So it was completely different in their culture. And the response I would say is that these two different words, people would say that they're hotly debated and contested, but there's virtually unanimous agreement on these words among theologians and scholars for well over thousand years. This is not something that is just like, oh, we've been debating this for a long time. That's not the case. There's a little debate regarding the meaning of malakos, but there's hardly any on our Senecoitai, and I'll tell you exactly what they mean. Malakos simply means soft or is referring to that receptive partner and homosexual acts, as well as men who dressed and acted like women. So what does that talk about? That's talking about like cross-dressing. That's talking about trans. That kind of has that whole thing wrapped up into that. Arsenikoitai simply means men who lie with males. People will try to make it so complicated, and it's very simple. Paul was the one that coined this word himself, as a matter of fact. There's a Greek version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek version of it called the Septuagint. This is what Paul would have read from. And so... Paul takes these Levitical passages about homosexuality and he takes these words, arson, which means male or man, and then koitai or koitos, which means bed. And he actually coins this word arsenikoitai himself. It literally, if you just transliterate it perfectly, it means male bed. So it means it's a bed with men in it and no females present. So it seems very clear that Paul is not only coining this word, but look what he's doing. He's using the Old Testament to prove his point in the New Testament. So when people say, well, Leviticus doesn't matter because that's Old Testament. Listen, Paul was using Leviticus and using it to prove a point that homosexuality is not God's true design. And so what did Jesus have to say about it then? Well, we talked about Paul. We talked about the Old Testament. What about Jesus? Matthew 15, 19 through 20 says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder. Let me see, adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So the claim is, hey, where was it? It's not even there. Jesus didn't say nothing about it. And technically, you would be right. He never mentions homosexuality. He never uses a word for homosexuality. Uh, And so this just affirms that people are born gay, especially when Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, And if it was so important, wouldn't you think that Jesus probably would have talked about it? And here's the response that I would give. One of the reasons that the Bible or Jesus specifically doesn't talk about homosexuality sometimes is because the Bible clearly affirms heterosexual union from the very beginning of time. We talked about this in our abortion message. Jesus never mentions abortion. Does that mean that abortion is right because Jesus never mentions it? No. Just because the Bible doesn't talk about something does not mean that we can just accept it as fine. Does the Bible ever talk about cocaine specifically? But like, I think we would all agree that that's probably not a good thing for you to do. 
And so people will say, well, because Jesus never mentioned it, what's wrong? Here's the problem. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking about something that nobody was debating. Everyone knew that it was wrong. Everyone in the early church knew that this was not an acceptable practice from the Old Testament Levitical law all the way until then. It was not accepted. So why would Jesus talk about it? What does he talk about more than anything else? Divorce. Why did Jesus talk about divorce more than homosexuality? Homosexuality is way worse than divorce. Here's the deal. We're debating homosexuality now. Back then they were debating divorce. And so that's why Jesus talked about divorce is because that's what they actually had a problem with. Well, should we divorce or is it okay if we can divorce? Like, what about the Mosaic law? Like, what are we supposed to be doing now? And so he talks a whole lot about adultery. He talks a lot about cheating. He talks a lot about divorce. And he talks about sexual immorality, which actually does encompass homosexuality. A lot of people just don't understand that. So the Greek word for sexual immorality, we talked about this last week, is what? Pornea. That's where we get the word porn, pornography from. And so this refers to all sexual acts outside of marriage, which would definitely include the union of same-sex individuals. So uh, Jesus says in Matthew 19, divorce was never God's idea. God does not like divorce. In fact, he says he hates divorce. He doesn't like it. And that one man and wife are supposed to be joined together, become one flesh. Once again, reiterating this idea in Genesis 2. That is one man, one woman for a lifetime. This is what God wants. This is his original design. Now, do we always do it that way? No. Do we always hit the mark? No, we don't. But this is God's original design from the beginning. And Jesus was talking about eunuchs in another passage. If you don't know what a eunuch is, then I'll tell you in just a second, all right? Matthew 15 says, Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So the claim is, is that when Jesus mentions that some eunuchs are born that way, he's affirming that homosexuality is just something people are born with. This is just the way that you were born. This is the way that you are and you can't change it. The response would be, that gay theologians will try to use this verse to say that Jesus affirms homosexuality and that people are born gay. But not only is this passage not affirming that people are born gay, it's actually making a really strong case for living a life of celibacy. That's actually what it's doing. If you look at the passage very clearly, this teaching of Jesus has nothing, uh, has to do with people not marrying or even having sex. So the term eunuch initially in the way it was used referred to a man who had been castrated, which is something that happened a lot more in their culture. That doesn't really happen today in our world and in, in some third world countries that actually does, that is a thing. But in the Western society that we live in, that is not a normal thing for somebody to be castrated. And so Jesus is saying, hey, some people were born with no sexual capacity or they're born with no desire for sex. This is just something they don't really want. And in some have been castrated or made that way, and that others have chosen to be celibate by choice and other to advance the kingdom of God. We talked about this last week as well. Paul actually said, I wish that more of y'all were single because when you have a wife, when you have a husband, you throw some kids in the mix, you ain't got a lot of time to think about the things of God anymore. Why? Because you have basketball practice, you have a dance recital, you have school to get to in this school and this school, because I all go to three different schools, right? You know what I mean? And then you have your wife and you have your husband, you gotta have date night, you gotta go to church, you gotta go to work, you gotta work, you gotta pay the bills. And then now what happens is now we have less time to focus on the things of God, prayer, reading our Bibles. And all of you would agree that that is true, amen? Like we understand that to be true. We got school, all these other things. And so what he's really saying is, there might actually be some people that it's better for you to remain single and to remain celibate in order to focus on the things of God. You have to remember, Paul was talking about focusing on the things of God and Jesus, who is he talking to? He's talking to the disciples. Who are the disciples? A bunch of young men. Think about that for a second. A 20-year-old young man is learning about this what do you think that these young men probably want more than anything else in life? Like to get married and to be able to have sex. You know what I mean? Like young men are all the same, okay? Like we get it. And yet what did they choose to do? Almost every single one of them, except for one, 
was murdered for their faith in Jesus. Almost every single one was not married. They might have never even had the chance to have sexual relations in their entire life. Why? Because they gave that up and they pushed down their feelings and they took away, they said, hey, I will lay this down before you, Jesus, in order to pursue you more holy. And so what Jesus really is making a case for in a sense is, hey, if you have same-sex attraction, it might be the best thing for you to do to lay this before Jesus and say, you know what? If I can't marry a woman or I can't marry a man like God's design is, then I will lay this down before you, God, and I will just pursue you only. And that's a tough truth. And yet this is the case that Jesus is making. So lies that we are told to believe about this issue. I'm gonna go through some lies that we are told by culture to believe. And then I wanna tell you the biblical response to these. And then we will wrap up in just a moment. The first one is that love requires, true love, real love requires and even demands that we recognize, embrace, sanction, and even celebrate same-sex unions. And I would like to submit to you today that the greatest expression of love is leading a person to the truth as laid out in scripture. Leading somebody into truth is love. Lying to somebody is not loving. There's no way around it. It's not loving to allow a six-year-old to decide their gender identity. That's not a loving thing to do as a parent. It's not loving to go against biology and say that there's 72 different genders or 100 different genders and it's growing, the list is growing. It's not loving to deny the facts of biology and the facts of life to make somebody feel better. Let me tell you, parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What is our job as parents? That is to teach our children the truth to not lie to them, but to tell them this is what's true, this is what's not true. This is what's good and this is what is bad. This is uh, holy and this is sinful. God has entrusted us with these little babies. He's entrusted us with these children and it is our job to raise them up in the way they should go so that when they are old, they will not what? Depart from it. So it is our job to do the best that we can, parents, to teach our kids what the truth is. Lying to somebody and, and to make them feel better is not love. We have to understand this, but how you lead them there is also equally as important. Because this is where I think we get off sometimes in the church. This is the problem. A lot of times people will be taking their Bibles and smacking people upside the head and say, being gay is a sin, you know? Like that's what you do and you think that that's gonna help. In what world is that ever helpful? In what world is, is doing something like that with your child ever gonna get them to respect you or listen to you anymore? It's not. So why do we do that with people that disagree with us as adults and thinking that that's gonna change their mind for some reason? How you lead your kids and how you lead people to the truth of God's scripture is very important. And how do we do that? You have to start from a place of love. Uh, you could start with truth and that's fine. You can start with all these different things. But let me tell you, I'm giving you the truth right now so that you can have conversations later. But if you start with a conversation with your kid who comes to you and says, hey, I might be gay, I might be trans, I'm not, you know, I'm dealing with this right now, mom or dad. And if you come to them, well, arsenikoitai and malikos in the Greek, do you think that's gonna work? Start with love. Start with acceptance. Say, hey, I love you. I care for you. I believe in you. I know you're struggling with this. I also love you enough to tell you the truth. Hey, this is what God says. Let's look to the scriptures together. Let's look to what God says. That conversation might be really tough. And yet this is how we have to have it. How you lead people to truth is just as important, I think, as the truth itself. Because if you don't lead them the right way, they won't even be listening in the first place. Second lie we're told to believe is a person is primarily defined by their romantic attractions and sexual desires that becomes their identity. We talked about this during our message on racism. Culture wants to divide us by our labels. Culture wants to put a label on you and say that you're white and you're black and you're Mexican and you're Asian and everything about you is all dependent upon that. Your whole life should be filtered through that. 
you're straight and you're gay. Everything in your life should be filtered through that. Listen, you have one identity when you come to God and it is that you are a son and daughter of the most high God. You have one identity and that is found in Jesus Christ. Come on, can I get an amen from somebody this morning? You are not defined by your sexual attractions. You're not defined by that. You're defined by God's word and what he says about you. And if you have same-sex attractions, this is another lie. It says that you're gay and to say otherwise is to deny how God created you. It doesn't make any sense, but homosexuality is one of the only issues where we believe that having urges, attractions, and desires is a true indicator of who we really are. In what other, in what other scenario do we say that our urges, attractions, and desires literally define who I am? If that was the case, then we would all be some pretty terrible people. We would all define ourselves in a pretty bad way because we all have urges and desires that a lot of times we don't act on and thank God for that because some of the things that y'all be thinking are crazy, okay? And me too, I get it. But that's why we don't define ourselves by those things. But for some reason, homosexuality, we define everything about ourselves through that by being straight or gay. And so the gospel tells us that when we come to Christ, what do you do? You give over your desires, you give your flesh up, you fight against your flesh and you submit to the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. That's what we do. It doesn't mean that the desires and the temptations are gonna be gone. It doesn't mean that if you're same sex attracted that it's just immediately gonna be on. Sometimes it is. And it's a miracle and it's amazing when God does that. I've heard of that happening before. Immediate, when someone comes to Christ and boom, that, that same sex attraction is just gone. I've heard that when somebody comes to Christ, the alcoholism is broken in the name of Jesus immediately. That drug addiction is broken in the name of Jesus and it's incredible. But sometimes it doesn't work like that. And it is a process of over time becoming more like Jesus. It's submitting yourself daily to the will and to the word of God. More often than not, that's how it happens. It doesn't mean that they go away, but it just means that you're not gonna be controlled by them anymore. You're not identifying with them anymore. You're identifying with Christ, amen? Number four lie that we're told to believe, when you choose to tell other people that their lifestyle is a sin, you're being judgmental, which is spoken about directly in scripture. Listen, as believers, we are called to not be judgmental, to not judge hypocritically, not to uh, condemn others, but we are absolutely called to make good moral judgments. We are supposed to be moral people. We're supposed to make moral judgments about situations, not to be judgmental. You understand there's a complete big, big, big difference between having good judgment and being judgmental. So not the same thing. And the scriptures that speak about homosexuality, the, the next one, number five, the scriptures that speak of homosexuality are intended to keep me down and limit what I am able to do. Now, if that's a lie that we're supposed to believe, let me tell you, the boundaries and commands that God gives us are not there to hurt you, they're there to help you. Every command that God gives, whether we understand why or not, is there to benefit us somehow. It's not there to hold you down. It's not there to make life not fun for you. It's there to help you. God has given us the playbook for life. He's given it to us. It's the word of God. And when we go off script and we start calling audibles and call our own plays, it is going to affect our relationship with the coach. He's the one that calls the plays. He's the one that calls the shots. We run the plays. And then people don't like that though. That's the problem. We don't like that. Like I want to be in control of my own life. I want to choose the play that I run. You know what that's called? Idolatry. Why? Because you're raising yourself above God. You're saying your ways are higher than God's ways. But what does scripture clearly say? God is speaking to man. He said, my ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. Don't try to think that you know better than me because you don't. We, we like to think that we know better. But honestly, I'm dumb. All right? Like we all are. In comparison to the magnificent creator of the universe, we think that we know better than God. Come on, somebody now. That is just not the case. Let's run the play that the coach called, right? Number six, a lie we're told to believe. How can someone not follow certain emotions or desires that are put there by God? Like, Why would you ever expect somebody to 
to have to push away these emotions and these desires and these feelings that have been there maybe ever since they were a kid. Okay? First off, they weren't put there by God. I'll tell you that much. We live in a fallen world. We have emotions and urges that come along with that many times from Satan or demons themselves. But we automatically attribute everything that we feel or think or happens to us to God. And like we talked about in our Not Today Satan series, a lot of times we neglect that we have a real enemy out there and his name is Satan. And he wants to completely destroy, steal and kill everything about you in your life. He wants to twist scripture and distort it. That's why Jesus says in the last days, man, you gotta be careful because people will be trying to twist scripture to say things that it does not. And that is Satan's primary goal is to divide the church on issues in scripture, to get us to think different things and to not be unified. And so our emotions are not a good barometer for God's will in our lives. Would you agree with that? Like, I'm not gonna follow my emotions everywhere uh, they go. And if anything, scripture tells us to stay obedient to the word of God, regardless of your emotions, regardless on how you feel about a situation. And that's the problem is that it's just an inconvenient truth. It's inconvenient. A lot of truths in scripture are inconvenient for us. It'd be much better if God just said you could do whatever you want, right? And yet that's not what happens. But the issue is, is that most of us have relationships with somebody in this community, like, I know a lot of people that are gay. I have family members that are gay. And I love them dearly. And I know that you do too. Like, the people in your life, man, you love them. They're your family. They're your friends, coworkers, like kids, classmates, man. Like, you love these people. And we want them to be happy. I want everybody to be happy, right? And it would have just been so much easier if God was like, you know what? It's a-okay to be gay. Like, we would have been good. Like, no conversation. It would have been so easy. We wouldn't have to argue about this anymore. There'd be no child that would ever have to fear getting pushed out of their family because of their same-sex attraction. Uh, there'd be no child or, or a young adult that would fear having to be pushed out of their church because of what they feel about themselves. They wouldn't have to feel this rejection from their families, from their churches, from friends, and it would just be so much easier. But it's easier to follow truth when the truth is convenient. It's much more difficult when the truth is difficult. It's much more difficult when it's unpopular. It's a lot more difficult when you're gonna face rejection for believing the truth. When others are gonna accuse you of hatred and bigotry, I guarantee you there's somebody in here or in these three services today or somebody that's watching online that's probably gonna send me a really long text message or a really long email saying that I'm hate-filled and I'm a bigot and I hate all gay people and all this kind of stuff. I know that's not true whatsoever, but there are people that will say it. I guarantee it. It doesn't change the truth of scripture just because it's inconvenient. It doesn't change it because it doesn't feel right to us. A lot of things in life don't feel right to us. A lot of things in life don't feel right or fair to me, but it's not my judgment to make, it's God's. So the perspective of a lot of Christians in same-sex attractions, they say, well, I've wrestled with what the Bible says about homosexuality. I'm not 100% sure what to make of it, but you know what? I have this, and so I'm just gonna go along with it because this is what feels right to me. This is what feels best to me. This is what's easiest for me. That's idolatry, elevating yourself over the place of God. And, and we, can't, we just simply can't do that. That's one of the 10 commandments, like you shall have no other gods before me. And so, here is another question I think we should wrestle with. How would Jesus interact with people in the LGBTQ community? How would he? Um, a lot of LGBTQ leaders would point out that Jesus spent a lot of time with whom society marginalized, right? He spent time with tax collectors, spent a lot of time with sinners, prostitutes, all this kind of stuff. And he absolutely did. But did he encourage the prostitutes to sleep with more men? Did he help teach the tax collectors how to extort more money out of people than they already were? No. What did he do? He loved them enough to get involved in their lives and to help them change from who they were then into who God wanted them to be. He helped them to walk into their destiny. It's a complete difference between affirmational inclusion, which is I'm going to include you and affirm everything that you do, and transformational inclusion, that says, hey, I'm gonna include you and man, I'm gonna help you to be completely transformed. That's what the church is all about. 
You might walk into these doors not believing a single word of anything that we say or believe. But man, you're a part of this family. You could be a part of the Rad Fam and you belong here. People say that all the time in church. Why do we say it? That you belong here. We want you here, even if you don't believe what we believe, because we believe in transformational inclusion. You're not gonna come into this place and we're not gonna say, hey, every bad thing that you've ever done and all the bad things that you feel like doing and wanna do, hey, that sounds good to us. That's not love. That's not a good thing to do. We're gonna help you become more like Christ over time. This is a process of becoming more like Jesus. So the church and LGBTQ, I think we've done a very poor job of talking about this. I think most of us would agree. It's led to Christians like disproportionately judging homosexual sin over heterosexual sin. We talked about that last week as well because if we were fair in our judgments on these different things, we would reject adultery, unjust divorce, pornography, premarital sex, and all these other sexual sins with the same passion that we reject homosexual sin. But we don't. Why? Why do we not reject it? Number one, I think it's because these other sins are very much more hidden. And number two, I don't think we do it because we realize that if we were gonna, man, a lot of churches will kick out gay people but how about the 64% of Christian men that watch porn once a month? Are we gonna kick them out as well? Because if you're being fair in your judgments and you're being fair and you're not being hypocritical, then you would. Because the Bible condemns all forms of sexual immorality, not just LGBTQ, not just homosexuality. But I don't think we wanna have that conversation because we, we want to keep it hidden instead. A lot of people, that's what they want to do. That's what a lot of churches are doing right now. And they will go so hard on the LGBTQ people and completely glaze over the heterosexual sin that's right in front of them. We can't do that. Does that make sense why the world and why culture thinks that we're a bunch of hypocrites? Do we understand that now? Because they see all the stats and they see how we treat each other and they see that the divorce rate is a little bit lower, but not much, right? Like they just, they see that Christian men and women still watch pornography and they're like, then why are y'all so hard on these people? Man, but take the plank out of our own eye before we try to see clearly and take the speck out of theirs is what the Bible says. So the church has pushed out people. Christian families have basically, or literally disowned their kids sometimes because of this. At the very least, people in the LGBTQ community just feel very uncomfortable because of the judgment, so they just stop coming. They don't want anything to do with God or judgmental Christians. So if I can close with the story real quick, and Pastor Tim, come on up, my man. I was doing young adult ministry uh, for a couple of years in Oklahoma, and I sold my car to this guy, and uh, really solid dude, and he was telling me about some stuff he was going through, and I said, hey, can I pray for you? And he's like, uh, yeah, sure, I guess so. And so I prayed for him, and some of the, Walmart parking lot, you know, just selling my car to this guy. Uh, I invited him to the young adults gathering. It's on Thursday nights. And so he ends up coming and I started having a relationship with this dude. He's a solid guy, you know, and, and I find out that he's gay. I found that out from the very beginning, actually in the parking lot before I prayed for him. And, and, and he told me some stories about how he had been rejected from his church and basically kicked out. And a lot of his friends and family members and people that he loved just completely had nothing to do with him because of it. So he had came for about six months, ended up bringing another guy who was also uh, identified as gay. They weren't together or anything, but they're just friends that were coming. And so I said, hey, can I invite both of you guys to coffee? Honestly, I just want to ask y'all some questions. I know this might be a little weird, but y'all are the closest people I have in my life that, that identify as gay. And man, I just want to see where the disconnect is between church and the LGBTQ community and all this. And if you're comfortable with that, I'd love to talk with you. And they said, absolutely, pastor, sounds good. I mean, I had a good relationship with them. And so we went to go get coffee and he tells me more of these stories and the different things that he's gone through in his life. And I just was like, hey, man, can I be, bl I just wanna be very upfront with you. I'm very blunt. Why do you come to our church? <laughs> because you know, you know that I disagree with you on this. Like, why do you come to our young adults gathering? You know, I disagree with you. You know that, I believe the Bible says it is sinful to be gay and, and yet you come every single week and you're super involved. Like, why do you do that? And he took a second and then he looked at me and he just said, you know, pastor, I've just never felt more loved by anybody. 
This is the first time I've ever felt accepted in a church, that I feel like I could have a place to belong. I have friends and people that care about me and I've never felt that way before. I was like, man, I started crying just right in the coffee shop because I wish we had more people that felt that way about our churches, that they could come in and feel accepted, not affirmed in our sin. That's not what we're trying to do, but feel like that this is a place where people can wrestle with their faith and find Jesus and be transformed. This is a place where we're gonna lead with love first, amen? Like, I'm not gonna lead with a Bible and just bash your head with it. No, 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 listen, I'm gonna lead with the message of the gospel of Jesus that all of us need Christ. I need Christ. All have sinned and all have fallen short. And man, you need Jesus the same way that I do. And I'm just so glad that you're here. And I believe that there's freedom in the name of Jesus for every sin, for every temptation. I, believe, I wish that we had more conversations like that. And man, it was such a beautiful moment that I had with this young man and his friend. And, and I wish that we had more conversations like that. And so I just wanna quickly close with this. How do you love people? You gotta be there for them, man. Be a friend, be a parent, just be available to them. We're all looking for the same things, to love and be loved. Homosexuality, Preston Sprinkle says it like this, is not an issue to be solved. It's about people who need to love and be loved. It's not an issue. Like we think about it as an issue, but these are real people that deal with this stuff. And maybe you're somebody in here today. Let me talk to somebody, maybe he's watching online, or somebody that's in the room that might be struggling with same-sex attraction, dealing with what your faith has to do with this. How will I reconcile these things? Let me tell you, God loves you so much and he has a plan for your life. He has a destiny and a purpose for you. Maybe you have a family member that's dealing with this. Man, I want you to receive this word for them right now. God has a plan and a destiny and a purpose for them that is greater than the plan and destiny and purpose that Satan and this world and the culture that we live in has for them. Culture has a plan for them and it is not nearly as good as the plan that God has. And if you will submit to God, and you will give him your life fully. If you will put your flesh down at the cross and down at the altar and say, you know what, God, I'm dealing with this and I'm struggling with this. I felt this way for years now. And ever since I was a kid, I've been dealing with this. Ever since I was a teenager, I felt this way. And God, I'm gonna lay all of it down before you right now. And I wanna be holy as you are holy. God, would you transform my life? Transform who I am. Help me to find freedom in the name of Jesus. I believe that you will in the name of Jesus Christ. You can find freedom from anything. The same way that you find freedom from alcoholism, the same way you find freedom from drugs, freedom from you know, premarital sex and dealing with all these other lustful thoughts and anger and, and all these other things that we deal with, in the same way you can find freedom from this too. And I encourage every single one of you to have a conversation with somebody. And if you need to have that conversation, parents, if you need to have that conversation with a teenager, and maybe he's dealing with this, a young adult that's dealing with this, start with love. Lead with love first. Lead with acceptance. Man, I love you. You're part of our family. Let's talk through this. Let's deal with this thing together. Those of you that are struggling with this, you're more than your romantic and sexual desires. Man, our culture wants you to wrap your entire identity into that. You have one identity. You're a son and daughter of the most high God. I want you to remember that. I want you to declare that every single day. You're so much more than a label. You are more than your feelings. You have a unique call and destiny that comes from God. And if you look to Jesus, I guarantee he will help you to find that, amen? Let me, would you stand with us today? I know we got a rush here as we finish up. I just wanna pray for everybody here. Maybe you have a friend or family member, or maybe this is you. I just want you to know we love you. You have a place here at Radical Church. And if you are somebody that knows somebody, I want you to stand in the gap for them with this prayer. Amen, here we go. Father God, I thank you for our identity is found in you. Our identity is not found in this world. Our identity is not found in the culture that we live in, but our identity simply comes from Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray the blood of Jesus over every person here that would wash all of our sins away. God, we come to you and ask for forgiveness for times that we have gone against you. For the church, many times it has pushed people away and pushed people out. God, we repent from that in the name of Jesus. 
And we're so sorry, God, that, that sometimes we do a poor job of dealing with this topic. And these are real people that are struggling with this, God, and trying to wrestle with their faith and their feelings, culture and Christianity. And this is a tough thing, but God, would you help Radical Church? And would you help every person in here watching online to have tough conversations, but lead with love every single time? God, we could speak the truth in love. Lord, help us. If there's somebody in this place today or somebody watching that is dealing with same-sex attraction, God, I pray that you would help them to see that they're so much more than a label. There's so much more than how they feel, that God, you have a plan and a destiny for them. And it can only be found by submitting our lives to you completely. We give all of this to you. We love you, Jesus. And we believe that you are, have transforming power. In Jesus' name, somebody said, amen.